This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, we've done 12 weeks now on theology proper, and I saved uh, what may be the most impressive observation about God the Father that is repeatedly underscored from beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. And I left that for the end because it brings our minds into a certain level of consternation and frustration because it does leave us with lots of questions. So uh, we, we decided to spend a whole night on this one topic. And so before we get into it, let's bow for a word of prayer and then let us engage our minds one more time on this topic here at Compass Night. 2008. Pray with me, please. God, thank you for our opportunity to engage our minds in the study of your character in trying to better understand and grasp with our finite minds the infinite characteristics of your nature and of your character, your your existence. You are a God that is um, clearly beyond our full comprehension, but God, we want to leave here knowing you better want to know more about you, and we'd like to deepen our intimacy with you. We'd like to use the knowledge that we gain to, uh, to draw our hearts, our regenerate hearts, into a more closer, uh, a closer, into a closer and more um, uh, faithful, intimate, close relationship with you. So help us. This is one that I hope, God, as we study this part of your character, this prerogative of your of your nature as Hodge says the prerogative of your perfection that we would be able to uh, to stand in uh, awe of you because as a church that recognizes the need for a high view of God in a day and with our natural fallen tendency to bring your character down into some kind of manageable level some package that we can start to understand and 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 deal with on a on an easier and, and a more, more processable way, I, I pray that we would put you back in our minds where you belong, that you are uh, a great God, a majestic God, as the writer of Hebrews says, a consuming fire, one that we should uh, stand in awe of. And God, we should never become like so many, it seems, that want to see you as a trite deity, a, a, a tame God, even as C.S. Lewis said poetically in his children's story. You are, you're not tame. You're not domesticated. You are not um, able for us to, uh, to package your knowledge and put it in our back pocket. Uh, you are uh, a transcendent and a great God. And I pray tonight we would leave with that sense of having had, again, I trust, elevated our view of who you are, the only God that is the accurate view of God that is presented to us and needs to be mined in the scriptures. We need to give our full attention to it and we need to think down on it, as the scripture likes to say, Cataphraneo. we need to, to, to concentrate on these facts that they might penetrate our, our minds and develop our thinking. Make us mature, even as Paul said, that we wouldn't be children uh, with infantile thinking, but that we would uh, grow to be mature as we perceive you uh, uh, 
more accurately, face-to-face was his terminology there in 1 Corinthians 13. And I pray, God, that we would uh, indeed have a glimpse of that before we pass through the threshold of this life into your presence. So help us tonight, God, and give us a, if you would, please, God, as a generous father, give us a, a, a satisfying meal, a, a sense of your um, character that we didn't uh, have before, maybe just a refreshing reprocessing in our thinking of your greatness. We ask for this humbly. We don't deserve it, but as your kids, we know you delight in giving us good gifts. And you said if we asked for the Holy Spirit, you'd give it. And God, we have asked for that. And we have your spirit in our lives. And now we pray for another good gift that you would give us a deeper knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hopefully you found that worksheet. And let's just dive in with a simple statement that I trust you can read on our truncated screen. God is sovereign. I know that we touched on that earlier, but we want to think through some of the implications of that tonight. And to start with, we need to define it. And I'm not sure, I think John may have dealt with this briefly, but let me give you my definition, composite definition of God's sovereignty. By that, I mean that God retains all rights. He contains all rights and exercises He retains all rights and he exercises supreme and ultimate authority. He retains all rights and exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone and everything. God retains all rights and exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone and everything. That's the picture given to us in scripture and illustrated to us time and time again. Familiar phrases that we're used to hearing, but when we think of them in light of this attribute, maybe they would come alive if we would connect this definition to phrases like this that are given in a day of kings and princes and emperors. Turn with me, once you jot that down, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look carefully at the way the Apostle Paul writes to his protege pastor in Ephesus, Pastor Timothy, And reaches this crescendo, this great statement at the end of his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And again, I say that because we know nothing of monarchs and princes and and kings. uh, We've grown up, most of us here at least, in uh, some form of a democracy. And we, we don't have that sense of absolute authority. Everyone is clamoring for their rights and we aren't giving our rights to anyone else. No one external to us in an autonomous democracy like ours, no one has this experience of seeing someone outside of themselves saying, I retain all the rights over you. And yet the illustrations in scripture, like the potter and the clay, we're going to look at that later. The potter exercises complete and sovereign right over the clay. That's a picture of something that we know nothing of in human relationships. But it's touched on in a, in a, pure, demo, in a pure monarchy, which even in the day of the Roman emperors, Paul can speak of here in verse, beginning in verse 13. We'll get the sense of it. He says, in the sight of God, I'm about to give this, this exhortation, this benediction here, who gives life to everything, which, by the way, is the beginning of all discussions about sovereignty. God is sovereign because he gives life to everyone. He is sovereign by, his, by, by, by nature because he is creator, because he is the only creator. No one can can claim that. 
He gives life to everyone and to Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. Can't do it on your time. It's not. He's not deferring to you. He will do it in his own time. God, now underline this, the blessed, here's the real key, underline this one three times, and only ruler. (laughs) Now, that doesn't make any sense. Plenty of rulers, plenty of bosses, plenty of monarchs, plenty of kings and princes. But he says, no, he's the only ruler. He's the only one who, who retains ultimate authority. Now, here's the phrase you've heard a lot in the Bible, but let's give it meaning against the backdrop of a definition of sovereignty. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in a day when Nebuchadnezzar could say, I have complete authority over my kingdom, I defer to no one, no Supreme Court, no checks and balances, no, no democracy, no voting. Uh, he, he's sovereign over his reign. And the emperor, of course, of Rome, same way. He had all the power and all the authority. He says, no, there's no authority that is not under the authority of the king, the only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords. Who, here's another word of exclusivity, who alone is immortal. And again, why do you have power? Because you, by definition and nature, your ontological nature is distinct from everyone else. You are something that no one else is. You are the only one who didn't have a start. You're the only immortal one who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. In other words, all our honor, all of our might ultimately has to find its home in the end run of authority, which is God. He's the end run of all authority. Even that statement, as we think through what we mean by sovereignty, I hope will come to life for us. God is one who retains all rights and exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone and everything. Compass Bible Church, we've decided uh, to make as one of our clear and vocalized distinctives to say that we are going to try to hold to a high view of God. All of our distinctives, by the way, if you relax the entropy of, of, Christ, of the Christian life, if you just relax, you'll move away from our eight distinctives. You have to work to maintain them. And as I say, said recently to our staff in a staff meeting, if you were to die, I think I may have said it here too, and stand before God, is your view of God going to go up or down? No one's going to go up. No one thinks it's going to go down. So we have to fight to bring him to a place in our minds where he is more of what he really is in reality. And that is exalted. Those are images of spatial comparative, right? He's, he's above us, but the point is authority. And to put it in the plainest terms that I can, he has ultimate rights and exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone and everything. American Christians don't like this. For one, because we've never experienced any reflection of it in our daily lives. And we've grown up in this libertarian, autonomous philosophy of who we are that we don't give our rights over to anyone. We've never experienced it. But God is sovereign. Important for us to recognize that. And as you saw in the title of our message here, we called it the decrees and sovereignty of God. I threw that one in for you hardliners. Uh, All we mean by decrees is this. Letter B, God has a plan. (laughs) God has a plan. We're not deists. We don't believe that God has stepped away from his creation. We don't believe that he's uninvolved. We believe that God as the ultimate authority, actually has an involved participation in his creation, and he's working a plan. He's got a plan. The plans in formal and historic theology are called the decrees of God. 
God plans to do this and God plans to do that. It's not the doing, it's the planning. And as we stand and study the nature of God, we say if he plans it, he does it because that's the picture throughout the scriptures. If God plans it, he does it. Take a look, for instance, at Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Let's, let's go there and see how far we want to discuss the decrees of God here tonight, the plans of God. Now, if you're a real Sunday school grad, you might remember that Isaiah 14 is that bizarre chapter that alludes to Satan's fall, but is a telescopic prophetic statement about Babylon, just like Ezekiel 28, just like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 in light of the king of Tyre, Isaiah 14 in light of Babylon, both of them have these allusions to the satanic or the, 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 uh, the fall of Satan, angelic rebellion. But he says here, just about the time we're turning pronouns from from Satan and a description of his fall to Babylon. He says in verse 23, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 23, that he's going to turn her, and you can look back in verse 22, that's Babylon, into a place for owls and into a swampland. Now, that's like saying New York is going to be a swamp. I mean, that was the reigning power of the world in Isaiah's day. Wealthy, rich, they had it all. And he says, I'll sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares Yahweh. And now here's what's often associated with the sovereignty of God Almighty. And when I say that, I mean, it's not that he just plans. It's that he has all power to carry out his plans. He's all powerful. Verse 24, Yahweh Almighty has sworn. That's what we often see when he tries to emphasize that these plans are unbreakable. He's not going to be swayed. And and Hebrews makes a big point of that. He's not like a man, like he changes his mind or changes his plans. As surely, now underline this, as I have planned, so it will be. The decrees are the planning. The working out of the plan is the powerful, authoritative involvement in history. But the planning is the decrees of God. He has a plan. And because he exercises supreme and ultimate authority over everyone, he's going to get it done. Surely as I plan, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. That was the preceding empire before Babylon. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people because they, the Assyrians, came in and defeated the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And his burden will be removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over. Now notice this. All nations, not just Israel. For Yahweh Almighty has purposed, and here's an important phrase, this is what we mean by him carrying out necessarily all of his decrees, all of his plans. For as Yahweh Almighty has purposed, he says, and who can thwart him? No one can, no one can oppose this. He's going to do what he wants to do, and he will carry it out. His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Rhetorical question, the answer is nobody. And we could go to several places to illustrate this, but throughout the Bible, it is peppered with, with affirmations that you cannot expect anything to stand up against the decrees and plans of God. Turn, for instance, one facet of this is in our New Testament, which causes us great confusion and frustration. Ephesians chapter 1 is one example as it relates to our salvation. When you say that about the defeat of the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian kingdom, you could say, well, yeah, of course, 
God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and he puts him down and no one can thwart him. That's what Mary said. That's what these great statements of scripture and these poetic statements of praise. God does what he wants to do. He raises people up and he puts them down. Where we start to have a problem with this whole biblical affirmation is when it relates to us. See, it's easy for me to say, well, he did that to to Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he, he can do that to him. But now... The New Testament speaks so much to something that you've experienced. And as he describes that, he says, oh, I'm sovereign over that too. I planned it and I carried it out. Do you see how that feels different? Isn't that where all the debate is? I can say that he's sovereign over Assyria and Babylon. I'm just having a problem saying he's sovereign over my life. Planning and carrying out his will. Because then I'm thinking, wait a minute. I had a part in this. You don't think, ba- you don't think Nebuchadnezzar could say the same thing? Right? I built this place. Matter of fact, that's when he gets slammed, is it not? Keep your finger in Ephesians 1. I've got to look at this. Go to to the statement of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This is so good. In in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? As the royal residence, by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty. That's like Muhammad Ali, right? Saying, dude, I'm the greatest. And you know what? Get in the ring with me, I'm going to knock you out. And who could say anything else? That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. His armies were the strongest. He had more loyal uh, leaders and commanders and lieutenants. He was the winner. He did it by his own power. Now, you're a Sunday school grad, so you look at that and go, no, it was God. But if you were Muhammad Ali, worked out all of your life, right? And you had that ability to knock anybody out. You, I mean, you'd, ha- you'd be tempted to say what he says. I can do this. I'm stronger than you. I can beat anybody up. Verse 31, my favorite verse. The words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven said, this is what is, what's the word? Decreed. That's what we're talking about. Planned for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from now. You can't take what is mine and I earn and rightfully attain to. Well, that's the point. You think you did it because you experienced it. You went through all the hassles of politically fighting all the people you had to fight. Right? Nabopolassar and and the handing down of of the kingdom. But it wasn't you. Your authority was given to you and it's going to be taken away. You'll be driven away from the people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass. Like cattle, seven times will pass you by. So now he's a nut, right? He's a nutcase. He's out eating grass in the backyards of the palaces in Babylon. Verse 33, right? Driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. There's your king. Think about it. It was the most humiliating picture you could think. Well, there's our old king. Yeah, yeah, you've heard about him, right? Just having lunch back there. I mean, it was embarrassing. Now, at the end of that time, after he was out there naked with his hairy back and claws like birds, his nails were long. Verse verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Because, by the way, you're not going to make one political decision with Nabopolassar uh, unless God lets the synapse fire in your brain according to his sovereign and involved plan. He does all that. You're just along for the ride. I know you're making decisions, but God is sovereign. 
Now you get all that back. My sanity was restored to me, which is a, kind of a funny thing because he thinks it's his authority. It's not really you. Then I praised the most high and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. Ontologically, by nature, he's the only one who has an eternal dominion. Everything else is derived. Everything else is given. His is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. Now, there's an interesting statement. All the power then is given, right? It's granted. You don't gain it on your own, but I did. No, you didn't. You, you had the experience of doing it, but the mystery is God did it in you and through you on the peoples of the earth, not just the powers. And he does what he pleases with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? No one can do that. Now, again, we've all studied that in Sunday school. But if that's true for Nebuchadnezzar, is it true for you? Well, no, not well. It's different. He, he's it's the same exact thing. Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe it either. But God had to humble him to show him this is true. I'm doing everything in you and through you. Same for you. Including Ephesians 1. Is your finger still there? Your salvation. God planned it. Nebuchadnezzar was king because God chose Nebuchadnezzar, picked him out, put him in place, gave him power, let his brain work properly, and raised him up to a level of leadership, and even said when Israel, or Judah specifically, was going to go under, under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Think about that. He was... That's like saying, you know, during the Cold War, talking about Russia, right? Or, or during World War II, talking about Hitler, Nebuchadnezzar, your servant. Yeah, because I'm doing whatever I want with the powers of heaven. And I'm using him, who I know is not as righteous as you guys, which aren't as righteous as you should be, because you're not righteous in sight of God, but you're more righteous than, than Babylon. Do you remember Habakkuk saying, how can you let them punish us? And God's saying to Jeremiah, it's my servant. Now, if God's doing that to Nebuchadnezzar, did he do that with you and your salvation? Do you understand in the modern Christian bookstore, the books on the shelf say no? It's only the old stuff that they don't carry anymore that says yes. You understand that, right? The new thinking is you did it. God didn't do it. And I, I understand that that torques people, torques them. They hate to hear that God chooses plans and carries out plans because your experience like Nebuchadnezzar is, I did it. I did it. I listened to those sermons. I figured it out. I chose Christ. I just need to tell you, there's a mystery here. God is sovereign. He exercises complete authority over all people, all things. Ephesians chapter one. Now, are you ready for this? I was ready for that 10 minutes ago. Okay, we're, we're to it now. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Well, thank you, God, in Christ. For he, what's the word? Chose. That's a decree of God. He made a decision. He planned. He chose us, me and you, Christian people, Ephesian Christians, Colossian Christians, Philippian Christians, in him before the creation of the world. Wow, that's some long-term planning. That's what the Bible teaches. Before 
the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in reality. Is that what it is? No, because you're not holy and blameless in your behavior. Holy and blameless in his sight. That's called salvation. Imputed righteousness. Who chose to impute righteousness in your life? He did, but I chose him. Do you see the point here, though? He chose you before you were born, before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before America was a thought, before the earth was created. He chose you. I don't like that. Well, you're not going to like the next phrase, that's for sure. Here's the dirty word. In love, he... What's the word? Oh, no. He must be a closet Calvinist. What's that word doing there? He predestined us to be adopted. What does that mean? Another word for his decrees. He planned it ahead of time. That's what it means to be predestined. He planned it ahead of time to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and my will. Is that what it says? No, and will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Are you catching the emphasis here? Which he has freely given us. He didn't earn it in the one that he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That's not our wisdom and understanding. That's his. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. This is is an impossible passage, right? This does not match 21st century evangelical modern-day American Christianity. It just doesn't. Because it takes the ego right out of your gut. Because you don't get any credit. And you weren't smart enough to figure it out. And you can glance across the page at chapter 2, which says, no, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And to feel this sense of empowerment as though this was your good decision is like saying that it's the decision of a deceased person in a graveyard when Jesus comes in and decides to raise two of them from the dead. They don't get come up out of the grave and goes, well, I'm so glad I decided to come alive. No, you were dead. That's the point of Ephesians. Oh, we're not done yet. Verse 11. In him, we were also chosen. Okay, verse 11. Having been, here's our word again, predestined according to the plan of him who, here's our definition of sovereignty, works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You afraid of that big, bad, nasty, mean, Calvinistic thinking? Just memorize that section of scripture right there. And it'll wrestle you to the mat. And you can try and two-step your way around the fact that God is a sovereign God who retains all rights like a potter over the clay, makes the decisions, makes the plans, carries them out. And you, in one sense, are simply along for the ride. Just like a raised man in a graveyard is along for the ride when Christ walks in and says, Lazarus, rise up and walk, right? Come out. Live. Come forth. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that, verse 12, we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of, again, the pronouns are important here, his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, 
Oh, no, that's the chronology of it. Yeah, you heard it. The gospel of your salvation, having believed, right? That's your experience. You were marked in him with a seal. Oh, that's when you, that's when God got, got this thing figured out. No, remember, we started there in verse four before the creation of the world, the promised Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We may not like this doctrine. Modern Americans don't like this doctrine, but I can't get around the doctrine. Does it leave us with some mystery? Oh, sure it does. But according to the scripture, I just wanted to start outside and bring it inside. It's funny how we can easily affirm it when it's about a a bad dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. We have a problem when it's about me and my conversion to Christ when I was 23. See what I'm saying? We struggle with that. Nebuchadnezzar struggled with it too until God told him to go eat grass in the backyard for a while. Then he figured it out. You're in charge. You grant power. You do whatever you want. Lapsarianism. Do you want to get into that? No? Can I, can I skip that part? Super lapsarianism? Sidebar. Those are reserved for Sunday generally, but for you overachievers, lapse. What does lapse mean? Let's equate the word with what happened, the lapse in Genesis 3, okay? The fall, okay? Lapsarianism has to do with what you believe about the lapse, the fall. In God's mind, as it relates to redemption or salvation. You got two choices, supra-lapsarianism and infra-lapsarianism. Supra means before or above. Infra means underneath or after. Another parallel is sub-lapsarianism. Sub-lapsarianism and infralapsarianism are the same things. And it's a great big word for games where you need a long word. Supralapsarianism. What's that, seven syllables? It's a great word. Supralapsarianism, infralapsarianism. You guys okay? Shouldn't have gone here, right? You got two choices. It has to do with when did God decide in his mind, not the carrying out of it, because everybody believes it happened before the foundation of the world, to save people. Did he logically in his mind decide to save people or decree to save people, plan to save people, when in his mind he pictured them or saw them as fallen? In other words, the fall precedes the saving or the saving precedes the fall. In other words, is the plan of salvation a response to God's plan of the fall or is the plan of the fall right? His reaction to his plan of salvation. Did you catch that now? Now, did you follow that? Say that again. Is salvation the plan that responds to the fall, right? Or is the plan to save, right? And the fall is a response to the plan to save. See what I'm saying? Superlapsarianism was a minority view, For many, many years, even from the pipe-smoking, tweed-jacket professors that I studied under at those reform schools, right? And I don't mean reform schools like the juvenile delinquent schools. Most guys were infralapsarian. God logically considered man fallen, and then he chose or decided to plan to save them. Growing today among internet theologians who don't wear the tweed jackets and smoke pipes, they're 
Some of them smoke other things, but they are really keen and cool, nifty, super smart, use big words, uh, internet theologians, now love to be supralapsarian. God planned to save and then planned the fall in response to the plan to save, as opposed to the plan to fall and then the response to the fall was the plan to save. Burkhoff, I think, said at one time, that was a long time ago, one in ten might be a supralapsarian. Today, though, I think the odds are changing. Maybe half, I don't know, but it's trendy to be superlapsarian. Now, all the creeds, if you're into this, just the, again, this was a sidebar, so I should be standing here. All the Reformed creeds, right? Synod of Dort, if you're into all that, the Westminster Confession, all those kinds of things are all infralapsarian. Okay, no creeds are superlapsarian, although at the creeds and the debates of the divines, for instance, the Westminster divines, even the chairman who led the debate was superlapsarian, yet that never made it into any of the creeds because it was always the minority view. What do you think, Pastor Mike? How in the world can I know what God was thinking before the, this whole thing started? I don't mean to be a cop out here, but I don't know. Right? Come on. Really? I don't know. I'll leave that for somebody else. I don't know. All I know is the fall was a part of the plan and salvation was a part of the plan. Oops, that was in for lapsarian. Okay, salvation was a part of the plan and the fall was part of the plan. Super lapsarian. I don't know. Does it really matter? To some people who have way too much time on their hands, it matters. And I'm all for things mattering in theology, but this one I'm not sure matters a whole lot. Not to be confused, by the way, with double predestination, hyper-Calvinism. That's not the same thing. I know that doesn't mean much to most here, but maybe afterwards you'll not accuse me of whatever. Who cares? We're only on point B of the first, first point. God is sovereign. There's your definition. God has a plan. He's working his plan. What's the order of the logical decrees of his plan? Of, I don't know, but the plan is there and he's working his plan. And all the parts were planned because he works his plan. Well, what about the bad stuff like the fall? You're talking like about the fall like it was part of the plan. It was part of the plan. The Bible's clear on that. It was part of the plan. <laughs> That's disturbing. But we already started with that last week, didn't we? The way to put this with a biblical perspective is even bad things are a part of God's good plan. Now, back to your understanding of sanctification. Don't you teach that to people who are suffering? Don't you quote Romans chapter 8 verse 28? For we know that in all things God works for the good. Now the context is bad stuff. You've taught that, haven't you? We looked at it last week. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for even the bad. One passage, it's all we'll have time to look at, Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations. Go find the major prophets. You'll find it, right? Right next to Jeremiah, who wrote it. Now, lamentation, that's a bad word, right? <laughs> the lamentation. It's a bad word. Bad stuff was happening. Jeremiah was there at the fall of, of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, 586 BC. Wasn't good. Hymn writers pick up on the highlight of chapter 3 in verses 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, which, by the way, was a hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness, written for the Moody Bible Institute. Did you know that? First sung at the Moody Bible Institute. Verse 22. 
because of God's great love, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now that's a highlight and a high spot, but this is a negative passage about God responding to sinners with bad stuff because we're all sinners and Judah may not have been as sinful as Babylon, but they were sinful and God was using Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. I say to myself, verse 24, Yahweh is my portion, therefore I'll await for him. Yahweh is good to those whose hope is in him. It's amazing. That's grace. He, he is good to those who seek him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation, this, great, this grace-filled good that he brings to sinful people. It's good that, to wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh and perhaps the rectification of Israel, which, of course, Jeremiah was all about. He will come to Israel and restore it. Verse 27. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. It's good for him to sit alone in silence for Yahweh has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. The, the grace of that salvation it may break through. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though, underline this now, he brings grief. Who brings grief? Satan. Well, here it says he does. Even though he brings grief, he may not be the immediate cause, but he's the ultimate cause, right? He will show compassion for great is his unfailing love for he does not willingly. Now, careful with the word willing here. This means with joy, glee, happily bring affliction or grief to the children of men. But if he doesn't will it, it isn't going to happen. So clearly he wills it, but he doesn't do it, quote unquote, willingly with glee and happiness. To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, that would be bad. To deny a man his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Yet, look at verse 37, who can speak and have it happen? Which was Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. Go take Babylon. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not, here's our word, what? Planned it. He hadn't decreed it. Is it not? Underline this now. This will get, get guys, you know, fired after planes strike tall buildings in big cities, okay? But look at this. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? You know what that speaks to? The plan of God, the sovereignty of God, the decrees of God planning out things and working them out and even utilizing bad things in His good plan. Now, Modern evangelical 21st century Christians are going to say only good things come from God. Bad things come from Satan. That's much more dualistic, right? And pantheistic. Certainly, uh, it, it is a view of uh, a multiplicity of powers. It's not, the, it's not the biblical picture. Biblical theology is one monarch rules the world. He's the only ruler. And within the world, in his plan, the bad and the good work for his plan ultimately. And the good and the bad doesn't come unless God decrees it. As disturbing as that may feel, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should any man living complain when he is punished for his... Because here's the thing. Kushner's book, why do good things happen to... Why do bad things happen to good people? There's an answer for that, right? They don't. Have you heard me say that before? Why do bad things happen to good people? Answer, they don't. Well, yes, they do. No, they don't. Bad things happen to bad people. All those innocent people in the towers, bad people. The Bible says the wages of sin is, you know what would have happened to them had they not been killed in a fiery tower 
guess what? They would have lived, right? For a while. Then they would have died. We're always thinking as these finite beings, such short little time attention spans. That's why Jesus said, hey, how about that tower? That tower fell on all those people, the Tower of Siloam. Do you think there were greater sinners than all the other Jews in, in Galilee? Do you really think so? No. Everyone dies. Everything bad in the world happens not to good people, but to fallen people. Now, I know you're comparing your goodness to the next guy. That's why it doesn't seem right. And we want immediate judgment and penal response from God when they do a bad thing. Now, if they were killed, picture a guy holding up a lady with a stroller and a baby saying, stick him up. And then she won't give the money. So he's pistol whipping him. And all of a sudden, a plane comes out of the sky or a wheel falls off a plane, hits him and kills him. Then we'd all go, great. Right? They deserve it. We want to see that. We don't want to see people going about their work, trading stocks in a high building, get killed. That didn't seem right. Well, the whole point was the wages of sin is death. The whole world is guilty under the penal judgment of God. His reaction as a just God to sinful people is you're all going to suffer and die. That was the promise of Genesis 3. Verse 37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Verse 39, why should any man living complain when he's punished for his sins, whatever that pain or punishment may be? So let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. But we'd sure like that forgiveness, but that would be grace. That would be salvation. And God, we'd love that because we are guilty, needy people, sinners that we need. We need your grace. That's a different perspective, though. And when you start to see salvation from that perspective, now it's not this question of, I don't like this predestination thing because I don't like the fact that God chose some and looked over some other people. We don't like that. I get it. Because we like to see ourselves as innocent, like people in towers when they die. think, well, they're innocent people. But the point is, we're all dead in our transgressions and sins. The amazing thing is that God would reach down and choose any of us Not that he doesn't choose all of us. I know that's the disturbing part of this. But we're starting at the wrong place, thinking we're all good people. We're not good people. And every time the news people say, innocent people, you should roll your eyes. Because no one is innocent. No one is good. No, not one. That's what the Bible teaches. And when sinful people suffer and die, all you got to do is open your Bible and go, it's exactly what God promised would happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's called grace. And for every day a person lives without dying in a fiery fiery blaze, that's called common grace. And if you ever get out of falling into the ultimate fiery, fiery blaze called the lake of fire, that would be salvific grace. But it's all grace. Well, that was an unpopular section of this lecture. Even bad things are a part of his good plan. Ultimately, because he's plucking trophies of his grace out from the ash heap of a rebellious, sinful planet and setting them in heaven, saying, you don't deserve to be here, but out of my plan and decree to save you, I've plucked you from the burning ash heap to be a trophy of my grace so that you'll be to the praise and honor and glory of me and my grace. That's the picture in scripture. God is sovereign. And by the way, as long as we're talking about sovereignty, let's just compare our will for a minute because this is the rub with people in their minds. They say, I don't like this because it seems like a conflict of wills. 
All I've got to say is if you want to put your will up against God's will, would you please at least concede as a little tiny human soul infested walking a pedestrian piece of dust, right? $7.82 piece of biologic material filled with a reflection of God's grace called a spirit. Let's just say that the little speck that's running on the six-step ton ball spinning around at 1,000 miles per hour, going around this little tiny fusion ball called the sun, floating in the cold vacuum of interplanetary space, that you, that little six-foot-tall bacteria on the planet, let's just for a second maybe think that your will is inferior to his will. Call me crazy, Right? But just maybe we could hang with that thought for a few minutes. You ain't no big thing to God. Sorry. Sorry. No, you you and I think the world kind of revolves around us. God and I, we're partners in this thing. God, he's my co-pilot. God ain't your co-pilot. He's the only ruler and the only pilot. Our will's inferior to his. Several passages. Let me give you one. Can I turn you to one? Proverbs 21. To me, it's, it's so simple. As long as my nose is in the book. If I get my nose out of the Bible and just look around, then it isn't that simple. Then I get swayed into thinking like everybody else. But if my nose is in the book, I'm small, he's big. His will, ultimate, my will, tiny. He is free. I am contingent. He does whatever he wants. I'm just barely trying to do a few things and hoping as I bump into the walls of my limitations. He's great. I am not. He's holy. I'm a sinner. It's easy to figure out. But modern Christians are like 14-year-old girls who spend all their theological time staring in the mirror. You know what I mean? I just made that one up on the fly, too. It's true, though. Proverbs 21, are you with me? Look at this passage. Now, again, we don't know any sovereign people on the planet. There's no monarchs or kings that we know of. We, I mean, you know, you got Saddam Hussein or close to it. If you lived under his thumb, you might have a sense of, okay, now that guy gets whatever he wants. When it comes to an ancient monarchy, there is no one more free. No one's more free than the king. The king kills whoever he wants. The king gets any woman he wants. The king is sovereign as it relates to human affairs. You couldn't pick someone more free or has a stronger, more independent, autonomous will than a king. His will is, is independent. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, right? His mind, that's what heart is, right? Leb, his heart, his mind, his thinking, the center of his thinking capacity. Which humanly speaking is unilateral, independent. He does whatever he wants. That king... Well, his heart, it's in the hand of Yahweh. It's in the hand of Yahweh. Oh, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. You see that eyelash in the corner of the sink and the water's going and you go. That ain't a hassle. I never break a sweat doing that. Get that eyelash. There's more over there. I don't ever go, ow, hard. It's not tough to direct water in my hand. 
Nebuchadnezzar, everyone cowered in the shadow of the monarch. Unilateral, independent, autonomous, free, strongest will in the world, right? In, the, in, in, in his world, the king was the ultimate. And, and God says, ah, it's just like, if I don't want him there, I move him here. The question is, do you believe that about yourself? Or are we so intoxicated with our own ego? Seriously. That we think we somehow have a will where God looks ahead because he's just a spectator. He's got his sweater on and his little pinnet going, go, Mike, go. And he looks ahead and he sees me there hearing that sermon and repenting. And he goes, yay, he's a Christian. Now let's go back before the creation of the world. And I'm going to pick Mike. I want Mike on my team. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the modern definition of predestination and foreknowledge in modern Christianity. God looked ahead, saw what you would do. And then he goes back because he saw everything ahead of time and said, well, I choose Jim. I'll take Sally. Why? Because they chose me. You really think the God of the universe really is waiting to see what you're going to do so he can go in eternity past and decide what he's going to do? Really? Someone's will has to win. I think it's the dead person who loses, right? I think the dead people lose. I think the living one, the immortal one, the one who gives life to all people, I think he wins. And if he wants you on his team, he picks you. And as you live out your life, and as we go through our decision-making, and we choose Christ, and we go, hey, we chose you, he looks at us and goes, ha ha, yeah, but I chose you first. Does that sound biblical? Do you remember that passage? John, it's John chapter 15. John 15. They're talking about barren fruit. Then it's so insulting because now I've got to abide in him and I can't do anything without him. 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Wait a minute here. Your will is inferior to his. The king, here's, here's what I put in my notes at least, and the petty thief, the impulsive petty thief. From the king to the impulsive, petty thief. Put this verse next to that. Exodus 34, 24. Exodus 34, 24. God was commanding Israel to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, right? And they were to go up and do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, the problem is if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to leave my property. Man, we don't have security and we don't have, you know, wired barbed wire fences. And so I don't know. Here's what he promised. I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your territory as the context is taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And no one will covet your land when you go up three times a year to be- appear before me. How can you promise that? How can you promise? Well, you must have looked ahead and saw that it was going to happen. No. God is involved. He does what he wants. If you're on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he made a promise to the people. If you go there, no one's going to covet your land. They won't even covet your land. They'll walk by your land and they're not even going to look at it twice. So go to Jerusalem. Enough with the excuses. The king's heart is like water in the sink. And the petty, impulsive thief who walks by and sees an opportunity, his heart's in God's hands too. You may object to, him, object to God being sovereign over your will, but I assume you would not object to him being sovereign over nature, right? And yet, sometimes we struggle with that. I don't have time for that whole section that I prepared, but Mark chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, 
Mark chapter 4, he rebukes the winds and they said, wow, even the winds and the waves obey him. If the waves and the winds obey him, then I think, but wait a minute, the meteorologists say this is the patterns and the high pressure and the low and there's a gully and a trough and all that. If he wants to do something, he does it. He retains ultimate authority over all things, retains all rights, exercises ultimate supreme authority over everyone and everything, including creation itself. Well, if he does that, then I'm not responsible for anything that I do. That's the rub, guys, right? That's the rub. Number three, what to do about this. I know this creates a problem. How can he hold me responsible if he's deciding everything and I'm along for the ride? Well, you, have, you are a moral agent and you make decisions. And those decisions you'll be held responsible for. That creates a problem. How can God's will trump my will? My will doesn't trump his will, and yet I'm held responsible for doing something that ultimately I could say, well, the ultimate cause is God because God didn't plan for me to do the right thing here. He planned for me to do the wrong thing here. How does that work? Well, that's the quest of theologians to solve this problem. The first thing I want us to do is to recognize the goal, and that is to humbly, and that's the key, live with the conundrum. By conundrum, I mean these two unresolvable concepts that God decrees and plans and carries out his plan. And yet I'm making decisions that are so free in my mind that I'm held morally responsible for those decisions. I understand that is a problem. It is what Don Carson says, attention. It's one you'll never resolve, but it's true. Romans chapter nine. I must humbly accept that my will is contingent on his, and yet my freedom is such that I am culpable for wrong decisions. That is a conundrum. That's more than a paradox. You understand the difference between paradox and a conundrum. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory problem. A conundrum is a real contradictory problem, and yet they work together. They somehow find their validity side by side, with conflict, as, as Don says, with tension. Dr. Carson, I'm sorry. Romans 9. Let's drop down to verse 8. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children. This is a reprise of what we studied at the bottom of chapter 2 in Romans. But it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. But this is how the promise was stated. At that point in time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, he's planning things out, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. That sounds like your will is going to trump the will of these kids. Just as it is written, now he quotes the context in Genesis, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That doesn't seem fair. Verse 14. What shall I say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Put in the margin, Lamentations 3. Because there's where we see the question isn't, Neutral parties and God's sorting them out. It's guilty parties and God is bestowing grace. Mercy and compassion is God's choice. It does not therefore depend on the man's desire or effort, but on God's right sovereign mercy, on his choice of mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. There's a a will word, volition word, wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. They're already sinners, but he hardens them. That's the terminology of Pharaoh in Exodus. One of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us for he who resists his will? That's the question of the hour. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Here he brings us back to basics. It's perspective. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, saved people, and some for common purposes, unsaved people? What if God, in choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, on whom he, those he called, also called, not only from the Jews, but from among the Gentiles. Well, if you're going to ask the question, modern Christians say, well, then I want that kind of God. And I'm going to say, like I said to my my former haircutter, that's the only God we got. He's the God who is sovereign enough to make plans and carry them out, even if you feel like your will is trumped. But in our fallen state, the Bible says we'll be held responsible, just as Pharaoh was in Exodus. Now, this doesn't solve the problem. Let me quote this for you from Carson's book. And on the back there, you see some books. This is the first book on the list. Divine Sovereignty, page 220 and 21. For the monotheist, now follow this statement, don't try and write it down, you can email our office and get it if you must have it. For the monotheist, and that's important, not the dualist, okay? There is no escape from what Carson likes to call the sovereignty responsibility tension. In other words, I'm free enough to be held responsible for my actions. He calls it a tension. J.I. Packer calls it a conundrum. Whatever you want to call it, it's a problem. Now, for the monotheists, there's no way out, he says. Except, here's your way out, which modern Christians, who, by the way, who argue with this, argue this with me, most of which have never even read the Bible from cover to cover, right? Uh, Except moving so far from the biblical data, right? That either the picture of God, which is really vogue today, or the picture of man, okay, bears little resemblance to their portraits as assembled from the scriptural text themselves, Do you follow that so far? For the monotheists, there's no escaping the sovereignty, responsibility, except by moving so far from the biblical data that either the picture of God or the picture of man bears little resemblance to their portraits as assembled from the scriptural text themselves. Right? It is no answer. Now, these are the debates I have all the time. It is no answer to tell me that my presentation of the sovereignty, responsibility, tension, right, still embraces certain unresolved tensions. When you leave and go, well, that was unsatisfying and I need a different explanation because that didn't feel good because I'm still left with that Romans 9 question. He says, that's not an answer, right? Of course it does. And for all monotheists, it will. If there's one supreme, supreme only ruler, right? But to correct me, You must not claim to resolve the tensions, which, by the way, all the paperback books of of modern times want to do. Let's solve the tension. And that's all the Vogue thing today. Okay? (laughs) And Carson says, for such a delusion is easily exposed. All you do is open the Bible and read it. And you see, can't have it that way. 
right? The biblical data supporting a supreme and volitional God who chooses and retains all rights and is supreme, holds supreme authority and works his decrees out after the pleasure of his will and humans who make sinful choices and are held responsible for them on judgment day. Okay, so we've got a tension here. Rather, if you wish to convince me, Don says, that your theology in this matter is more essentially Christian than my own, right? You must show me how your shaping of the tension. That's a good way to put it. Because you're going to, this is a tension. You're going to have to shape it somehow, okay? Better conforms to the biblical data than mine does. See? And the way Don puts it, which is the way I've settled on this in my studies over the years, is, and I didn't quote this page, but is that my will is contingent on God's will. God's will is not contingent on my will. And that one statement alone still leaves us with attention. But I think in light of Scripture, right, that's a better framing of the problem, of the conundrum, as, as Packer puts it, than saying there is no tension. Because there's clearly a tension here. Okay, that's Carson, page 220 and 221. Sovereignty and responsibility. Which, by the way, how many of you have read, because I push this one a lot, number two on the list, Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. Anybody started to read that or been reading that? Is that helpful? Moving that picture in his mind from a hated doctrine to embracing it? Uh, If you want some more there, J.I. Packer, that's a good starter. If you just want to barely touch on the topic, (laughs) uh, but it's it's a good touch on the topic, Packer's book, it's a small book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. The anthology there. um, Those are editors. Still sovereign. Helpful. Anyway, you can look through the rest of those. Okay. What to do? All I'm saying is let's humbly live with this. It is a tension. It will never feel fully resolved. But let's just say, if you want to, well, you should reach your own conclusions, but say that my will is contingent on his will. His will is not contingent on my will. Because I know the Sunday school answer is God looked ahead, saw what I would do, and then he decided that. Which means his will is contingent on my will. I'm saying just the opposite. He chose me, then I chose him. I chose him because he first chose me. See, my will is contingent on his. Which, by the way, there are plenty of conundrums and tensions in Christian theology. And just being a resident on the planet. Whether it's eternality or or omniscience. No time for all those statements. Okay, secondly, let me just say this. Regularly acknowledge the contingency. I would ask you to regularly in your mind acknowledge the contingency. That, by the way, would have saved Nebuchadnezzar a lot of hassle, right? Just acknowledge the contingency. Herod does the same thing in the book of Acts, right? It's the voice of a God and not a man. And he gets eaten by worms. Now, I could have saved your afternoon, right? Just by getting you to acknowledge the contingency, If you want a practical statement on this, jot it down. You know the passage, James 4, 13 through 16. Now, to you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, when you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? You don't even know what your life is. It's like a mist. It's here for a while. Why don't you instead say, right, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's a good way to put it. As it is, you're boasting, he says, you boast and brag, and it is evil. Your boasting is evil. Why did Nebuchadnezzar eat grass for that stint? Because he was 
boasting, and God didn't take kindly to him thinking he wasn't contingent. All I'm saying is it would would do you well to regularly express your contingency on a sovereign God, which means say it if the Lord wills. And, And if it doesn't mean anything, say it some other way, right? If the decrees of God are still, you know, hang in this direction in my life, I plan on going to Quiznos tomorrow. I mean, whatever it is, work into your vocabulary a contingency. And when you succeed in something like Nebuchadnezzar or Herod, please, that's the most important time to acknowledge contingency. Right? All right. And then lastly, enjoy the security. Because there's nothing more secure than thinking that God's running the universe and not you with him having a notebook in his, in his lap, seeing what you're going to do in eternity past, right? Be good for me to think that he's running the show, which is, of course, exactly what the Bible teaches. And the application of this might be Luke chapter 12, when he says, who of you by worrying, this is verse 25, can add a single hour to his life? That's a good statement. Why? Because you think you're somehow sovereign over your life? You're not. You're not. And as I once quoted here, which was not an original quote with me, but as one of the old missionaries used to say, I think it was David Livingston or Hudson Taylor or something, I'm immortal, right? I am immortal until the day that God has decreed for my death. And that is a sense of security. And when things happen, bad things happen. I was looking through some notes today of some bad things that I did not know were going to happen. And I looked at those notes and I felt security because I'd been studying the sovereignty of God all day. And I thought, you know, not a surprise to God. I'm along for the ride. Now, I don't throw up my hands and indulge in evil. I don't want, well, that's where the next point's going really quick because we have no time. What not to do? Well, here's what I don't do as a response to God's sovereignty. Right? I don't use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. Just put that out by the side of that somewhere. Okay, and here comes letter A. This would be using a biblical truth that God's will trumps my will in an unbiblical way. The first way would be, right, what not to do about it, would be to stop working. And by that I mean, here's the philosophy, let go and let God, baby. Let go, just let go. Let go, let God. No, case the Rasarah theology, right? Whatever will be, will be. It's fine. I am a Christian now fatalist. Just whatever, whatever, whatever. No, it's not whatever. You should be working. You should be thinking. You should be seeking wisdom. You should be working hard on decision making. Want a passage for that? How about Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? There's the conundrum laid side by side. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Brothers, he says, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much much more now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Conundrum, tension, but working. The command for us to work, to think, to plan, to think down hard on things and make good decisions, right? Without the... Anxiety of the world, because I know God is sovereign, but I'm going to keep on working. Secondly, I'm going to keep on praying. Because I know some people, they get into this sovereignty kick and they think, well, then what's the use of praying, man? It's all worked out anyway. Here's the, here's the deal with praying. If you don't pray, you're going to be in big trouble, mister, because God told you to pray. So you'd better pray. And from God's 
holy word. He tells you in passages like James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, that prayer does things. Well, how can that be? I don't really know. (laughs) But it does. And God says it does. So keep on praying. Because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Stop with using biblical truths in unbiblical ways. Lastly, don't stop sharing the gospel passionately. Reasoning as... I think I counted earlier uh, at least three, maybe four uses of the word that's translated into English. Reasoning in Acts 17 alone. Paul's custom to reason with them in the temple, to reason with them in the, in the synagogue, to reason with them in the marketplace. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Why? Now, I've been to dispensational schools. I've been sat under, uh, uh, you know, full-blown, you know, uh, uh, haters of Calvinism. I've sat under Calvinist professors. And I've seen the gamut. And the thing that bothers me about people that get this concept of the contingency matter right in their mind is they use biblical truths in unbiblical ways. And I've sat next to guys, I know I've shared this story in my doctoral program saying, why would I ever tell someone to do what they're incapable of doing? Right? Which means to me, you're never going to preach the gospel to people. And my answer is, because God told you to. Right? And Paul said, because we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you be reconciled to God. So don't stop sharing the gospel. And we're out of time. With this, John Newton's hymn might be an appropriate way for us to close. I won't make you sing it, but let me read it for you. John Newton, Begone Unbelief. You don't remember this, but in the olden days, our grandparents sang it. Begone Unbelief, my Savior is near. And for my relief, He'll shortly appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and He will perform with Christ in the vessel, I'll smile at the storm. Though dark be my way, since he is my guide, it is mine to obey and it is his to provide. Though cisterns be broken and all and creatures all fail, the word he has spoken will surely prevail. Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter then is sweet And the medicine is food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long, and then how pleasant the conqueror's song. Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, and the medicine food. By prayer let me wrestle. He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I'll smile at the storm. Those are good words, because God is sovereign. Modern theology doesn't create that kind of confidence. And I hope as we try and let the sovereignty of God resonate in our study of theology proper, that might be a comfort to you. And I pray you won't stop working, stop praying, and stop persuading people with the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for this fall. It's always a busy time, but it's a good time for us to get busy about thinking thoughts after you and studying your word as best we can. We humbly recognize, God, that we are specks of dust. 
frail children. And on top of being ontologically frail and weak, we are sinful. And because of that, God, we, we have nothing in our volition or our will that should make us think like Nebuchadnezzar that we are the captain of our own fate. God, we are hopelessly dependent upon you. That's a big part of what prayer does for us when we pray is to recognize our contingency. And God, I pray that we would be familiar with saying it, not as a joke and not to where it becomes some thoughtless, trite saying, but that it would be the real, humble affirmation of our heart that there's nothing that we will do unless the Lord wills it. Unless the decree of God, the plan of God includes it, we aren't going to even live tomorrow let alone go to this city or that and make a profit. So please help us, God, to humbly see our smallness, to affirm our dependence upon you, and to stay busy about the work. Thank you for plucking us, God, from the ash heap of this planet, for making us a trophy of your grace. And while this may leave lingering questions, I pray at least it will help us to see you in a better and more biblical perspective as the ruling King of Kings, the only ruler, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thanks for this study this fall. We appreciate it. Gear us up for next year. We look forward, if you will, and if the Lord tarries, we look forward to a time when we can study about the origins of the text that we hold in our hand. Make us proficient in understanding it, apt to be able to explain the integrity of the documents as they exist today. Thank you for this crowd. Thank you for their commitment, their sacrifice to come here every week. I pray that you would benefit them for it. Pay them back tenfold, God, for their time and their attention. And let this series of sermons and lectures bear fruit in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.